looking, looking at this whole issue of, I guess, the will of God. <laughs> what is the will of God? <laughs> there are all kinds of ideas and theories and so on. Now, I don't get, want to get bogged down in the theological concept of the will of God, which, you know, people, what's his absolute will and what's his perfect will? No, you know, theologians can back and forth about that. That's up to them. I'd, I, I, I'd rather try to be a bit more practical in our approach to it. And so we've been looking at the simple fact that God does have a will. God has a plan and has a purpose for mankind. And we see that from Genesis right through to Revelation. We see this thread this thread of God involved in the universe, this thread of God involved in history, which is actually his story, God's story. And it will culminate one day when he returns and we all stand before him saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. God Almighty who was and is and is to come. But in the meantime, what is it that we do with our lives? You know, Romans uh, Twelve one, I think it is, it says, um, um, therefore, um, you know, because of what Jesus has done, we should offer ourselves as living sacrifices, wholly acceptable to God, which is our reasonable service, or in some versions says is our act of worship. In the, the Greek, it literally means that because of what Jesus did on the cross, this is the rational response to that, is we want to offer ourselves as living sacrifices. Not, don't wait till we're dead to be standing in his presence, but while we're alive, while we have something to offer and to bring to the table here on planet Earth, that we, we present ourselves to him now as sacrifices and go, right, what do you want to do now while I'm living? You know, One day my life will be gone, I won't have a choice. I'll be there and I'll be worshipping God and, and it'll be wonderful. Right now I have a whole bunch of choices to make and decisions to make with my life. And in amongst those decisions are, are so many things pulling me this way and that way. But what am I doing with my life that is subject to the will of God or a part of his story, a part of what God wants to do on planet Earth? What am I doing with my time, talents and abilities to contribute to God's story unfolding in my own life, in the life of my family, in the life of this region. What are we doing to contribute to that? The, eye of, the, 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 the will of God for some people is like the eye of a needle. And I've already mentioned before, I don't believe the will of God is the eye of a needle. I don't believe that the will of God is one particular pinpointed moment for your life by which every decision and choice you make your whole life must get you to that point of the pin, otherwise you've missed his will. The Bible doesn't paint that picture about God, doesn't talk about the will of God like that. There's a much broader picture that's painted in the Bible about the will of God. A few weeks ago we looked at Acts chapter 16. I want to go there again and look at the same passage. Acts chapter 16, verse 6 to 10. And it says this, it's... Paul and his crew going off on a missionary journey. And in Acts 16, 6-10, it says this. It says, Next, Paul and Silas travelled through the area of Phrygia in Galatia because the Holy Spirit had prevented them from preaching the word in the province of Asia at that time. Then coming to the borders of Mysia, they headed north for the province of Bithynia. But again, the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them to go there. Verse 8. So instead, they went through Mysia to the seaport of Troas. That night, Paul had a vision. A man from Macedonia in northern Greece was standing there pleading with him, come over to Macedonia and help us. 
So we decided to leave for Macedonia at once, having concluded that God was calling us to preach the good news there. So we've got this amazing story of the travels of these guys who are preaching the gospel and building the church in its earliest formation. Go back to the beginning. If we go back to the beginning of the church, what was their concept of the will of God? What did it mean for them? How did they go about that? And here we have a story of them deciding, the Bible saying that they were forbidden to go in this direction. So they turn around, they go in this direction. And while they're on the journey, it says again that the Spirit of God forbids them. The Spirit of Jesus, the Holy Spirit, stopped them. We don't know how the Spirit of God stopped them. We don't know. All we know is that maybe they sensed we should be doing this, and then God said no. So they went this way, and God said no. It happened a couple of times, and finally there's this dream, and they have, have this sense, okay, well, God, you must be speaking to us. We need to go over to Macedonia. And so they head off to Macedonia. But it's always been fascinating to me that right back in the beginning, when you go back and you look at the movements of the early church and how it was birthed, I don't get this picture that they sat around in a huddle praying and doing absolutely nothing until they were 100% convinced through dreams and revelations and all kinds of things that this was God's will for their life. They seem to me to be a movement of people who were happy to pick up their bags and go about life and do things based on the broader knowledge they already had of who God was and what God expected of them. They weren't sitting around waiting for some divine revelation, gathering together in, in, in little rooms. and. In fact, if you, if you go back to Acts chapter 1, verse 4, and, and Jesus says this to the disciples right at the start, now, this is before the Holy Spirit comes, and he says this. He says, I want you to go to Jerusalem. I want you to wait. So they did. History tells us that's what they did. The disciples gathered together in a room in Jerusalem, an upper room. Do not leave Jerusalem till the Father sends you the gift he promised, as I told you before. So they go. They wait in this upper room for the gift of the Holy Spirit to come. So they're waiting in this room, and what are they doing? They're just praying. They're praying and worshiping. They're not going anywhere. Why? Because they were told to wait for something to happen. So they did exactly what they were told and they waited for something to happen. Now, if you read on in Acts chapter 2, the Bible says that the Holy Spirit comes and falls upon each of them. Acts chapter 2 verse 1 says, While they were waiting, doing exactly what Jesus said, while they were waiting, the Holy Spirit falls upon them. And then Acts chapter 2 and verse 14 says this. It says, Then Peter stepped forward with the eleven other apostles and shouted to the crowd, Listen carefully, all of you fellow Jews and residents of Jerusalem. Make no mistake about this. And he goes on and he delivers a really hard-nosed message to them how these guys who shouted, Free Barabbas, Free Barabbas, were a part of the crucifixion of Jesus. He nails them with it. But what's interesting is this. that He waited. They sat up in that room and they waited until the Holy Spirit came. When the Holy Spirit came upon them, I see a group of people who stopped waiting and started acting. They stopped sitting there waiting for something from God and they got up and they went and started doing something with what they had, the Spirit of God upon them and the knowledge they had of who God was and who they were. They waited until the Spirit came. When the Spirit came upon them, we don't see a lot of times where they're just sitting around waiting. We see a, a movement of people going out there into the world, taking the good news and the reality of the cross to all the corners of the earth. The time of waiting was finished. It was now time to go and do something. Now, nowhere in the Scripture does it give us any indication at all that Peter was filled with the Spirit and then waited longer and prayed and asked, okay, Lord, so what do I do now? What? It just says that 
Okay, the Spirit of God's come. I'm looking out here at the crowd. They're looking at us thinking we must be drunk. That's not right. They're thinking it's supposed to be something weird. It's not really that weird. As a matter of fact, you would all understand that you know, Joel, the prophet, spoke about this. So he just steps up to the plate and addresses the situation that needs to be addressed. There's nothing overly spiritual about it if we break it down. He's just got the Spirit of God upon him. He sees a need. These people are confused. They don't know what's happening. So he steps up and explains to them. And he meets them at that point of need where they were right there. These people are drunk. He says, no, we're not drunk. This is exactly what the prophet Joel spoke about. Here it is, speaking of blah, 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 blah. And he gets up and he addresses them. And he talks about Jesus. He talks about the cross. And at the end of that, they they turn to him. And they go, what must we do to be saved? All this happened because he just maybe, possibly, and if I read the Bible correctly, I feel like I could be right, he took initiative based on the situation he was in, the knowledge he had of God and the knowledge he had of himself. And he did something. He stepped out and he did something. And the movement that we call the church was birthed. People started coming to faith, things started to happen, things started to move. I had some friends of mine just recently, anyone aware of Azusa now? Are you guys familiar with the big, there was a big meeting over in, if you go back to 1906, I think it might have been, there was a movement of God in a place called Azusa Street in Los Angeles. Uh, William J. Seymour, I think, was the preacher. And a, a, an African-American preacher, not overly educated, but God turned up in a meeting, things got out of control, and they call it the birth of modern-day Pentecostalism. And they say it happened there. The Spirit of God came, people were saved, healed, delivered. Miracles, amazing things happened. So last year, I think it was, or might have been the year before, they had a, like a 100-year anniversary thing um, over in, in Los Angeles. I've got friends all around the world who went to it. I didn't go to it. Friends from all around the world who flew into Azusa now, and, and I saw uh, on their live streams, on their phones and things, like just hundreds of thousands of people, every tribe, nation, tongue, worshipping God together. They had worship on the platform. Uh, there'd be two songs in Korean, then there'd be two songs in African, and then there'd be a couple of songs in this and that, and it was just beautiful. And everybody's there, and if you didn't know the language, they just didn't care. They just worshipped God anyway, because we're going to be doing this probably one day, I don't know. So they're just standing there, and they don't understand the, the words, but these friends of mine were saying it didn't matter, because you just felt this presence of God, the Spirit of God was there, and these people are singing in Korean, worshipping in Korean, and we just, I don't understand the words, but I understand the Spirit. Come on, God, do something. And they had speakers from all cross denominations come, raving Pentecostals, real mainline guys. But it was just a beautiful expression of the body of Christ, recognizing what God had done. And somebody actually prophesied, I do believe, way back then, that in 100 years from now, God will do the same thing again. So they all gathered back and, and did this thing. But I bumped into some friends of mine in town here, who had, in, in Bowen, who had been there. And that's fine, it's great. You went over there, wonderful. I came back and I bumped into them in the street and they told me, oh, we just got back from Azusa now. And I thought, oh, wow, that's awesome because I've been following some friends on, on, um, online. They've sent me photos and videos and that and it looked like a great time. I said, it was wonderful. It was fantastic. I said, awesome. So what, you know, what, what, what's, what's sort of come of it? What's happening now? What are you doing? Well, we can't wait. We want to go and pray and ask God what he wants to do. And I walked away from that scratching my head going, I don't get it. I don't get it. It's like... We want to go back into the upper room and start praying all over again when God kicked the disciples out of the upper room 2,000 years ago when he sent his spirit upon them. And we have these pockets of Christianity. We want to go back to the upper room and we want to start praying again. Now, please hear me. I'm not anti-prayer. I pray every day. I believe in prayer. I pray for, you know, I, I, I believe that prayer moves mountains. I'm, I'm 100% into prayer. But prayer that stops at prayer is a waste. If we're not praying, 
with the end result of our prayers to be some kind of movement, activity, action, what are we praying for? And she said, we just want to, I can't wait, we're excited to go, basically we're excited to go back to the upper room and pray again. And I'm thinking, we don't need people back in the upper room in my country right now just praying. So what we want to do is pray, God, you do something that you told us to do 2,000 years ago. But we want to put it back on you, God. God, you go out there and God, you break through. And I'm all for that. I'm all for praying, God, break through our nation. God, do something in our nation. Holy Spirit, move in our community. I'm all for that. But at the same time, I'm also very aware that when I move in my community, that's the Holy Spirit moving in my community. Amen? When I get out and I do something in my community, that's the Holy Spirit doing something. I was so disappointed. I felt like, God, what, what's happening here? We want to go back to the upper room and we just want to become inactive again and become passive again. Yet I read the stories of the great men and women in the Bible and I just see people who, if nothing else, took initiative on the basis of who they knew they were, who they knew God was and what the needs were around them. They just did stuff. They just did stuff. And to think that people, you went away to this meeting and the Holy Spirit moves and what you got out of that was, I just want to come back, go to a room and pray. I think, oh, I don't know. I don't want to keep my heart in this. I'm not saying don't pray. Let me be very clear. I believe in prayer. But I also believe that Jesus has told us to do a lot of the things that we keep going back to him and asking him to do. The Bible is very clear. There are a lot of things that God has already said. You go and do it. And we go back to Jesus and say, Jesus, I pray that you would do this, you would do that. And he's up there going, what are you asking me for? I told you to do it. I put my spirit inside of you so that you would be active and you would go and do these very things. And as you go, he said, I'll be with you. Don't pray and tell me to go and do it. And you say, hey, God, you go and do it and I'll be with you. He said, no, no, what's the other way? It takes faith. You have the Holy Spirit within you. Start moving. Start doing things. Start meeting needs. Start looking at situations, opportunities, where we can bring the presence of God, where we can bring the Spirit of God into an environment, into a person's world, into a community. Start looking. Start moving. Don't sit back and wait. Lord, I'm praying, God, you just give me a sign, Father. You give me a word, God. You give me a word because I don't move unless I have the word of God. people, People say that and it sounds really spiritual. I don't do anything unless God says. And I think, what a load of crap. You had wheat picks this morning. Did God tell you to have wheat picks? You put a purple shirt on today. Did God tell you to put a purple shirt on? You went to school. Did God tell you to go to school? You bought a car. Did God tell you to buy that exact car from that exact person for that exact price? And did God tell you to put that exact petrol in that exact car, that exact service station with that exact Bowser? But when it comes to anything to do with God or doing something, oh, I'm just waiting on a word from the Lord. I'm just waiting on a word from the Lord. Well, you can sit in that upper room and wait till the day you die. Well, you can embrace the fact that, you know what, the will of God is a lot broader than you probably think it is. And you've only got to go to the pages of the Bible to see that. Why did the disciples go in this way and then suddenly get blocked, go in this way, suddenly get blocked? They obviously didn't sit around waiting for a word from God. God to, oh, God said, go there. And then when they got halfway there, God starts laughing at them, mocking them, going, sucked in, gotcha. Just joking, go that way. And so they start going that way and God goes, ha, ha, sucked in, gotcha twice. Wrong again. No, just kidding. I'm having a good day. Just go that way. You know? It's not God. What did they do? They took initiative based on who they knew God was, who they knew they were, and what they knew the need was. 
These people, these nations, these cities, they haven't heard the gospel. They need to hear about Jesus, so we're going to go. We're going to go. And that's how communities are changed. That's how God makes a difference in the world, I believe, is when his people take initiative and do things. Stop sitting back and hiding behind phrases such as the will of God. And I'm just praying. And again, I'm into the will of God and I do believe God. Look, Paul the Apostle several times in his letters writes, Paul an apostle by the will of God. Is that right? It's interesting. I don't want to go there right now. But most of the time when the Bible talks about the will of God, it's not talking about what you do. It's talking about who you are. Most of the will of God talk in the Bible is not about the things people did. It's about who you are. You are chosen by the will of God. You're a child of God by his will. You are purified, made holy by his will. Paul, an apostle by his will. It's more about who we are than what we do. But we think about what we do and we try to cram it into this little eye of a needle type thing. And all it does is paralyze the church. And the church does nothing. We do nothing. We don't impact our world. We don't see our own lives changed. Because that's all part of the process as well. Yet I go to the Bible and I look at great men and great women of God. And I see some amazing things they did. And I try to go through the, the Bible, the Greek, the Hebrew, the backgrounds, everything, and say, well, God, where was the magical sign you gave them? And it's amazing how many of them didn't have a magical sign. They didn't have a magical neon light flashing in heaven. Uh, look at David versus Goliath. First Samuel chapter 17. You've got this little dude comes to give his brothers lunch on the battlefield, sees a massive giant, decides, who's, who's, who is this dude that keeps mocking our God? Anyway, gets to the head, to King Saul. King Saul calls him over and David goes, you know what, give me a crack at him. I'll have a crack at him. I'll get him. So Saul goes, sweet, cool bananas. Wax his armor on him. Of course, the armor's too big. He takes off, says, I can't do it in this. And the Bible says that he walks up and he looks at Goliath and Goliath goes, am I a dog? Am I, seriously, am I a dog? He looks at his own mates. Do I look like a dog to you? What are they sending this kid out here for? And David says, you know what? You can call me whatever you want. Don't you dare mock my God. And I'll prove today. I mean, he's quite descriptive the way he words it. I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. The birds of the air are going to come eat your flesh. I mean, it's pretty descriptive. But basically what he says is this. Based on who I know I am, child of God, based on who I know God is, the King of kings and Lord of lords, and based on the situation right now where God's people are carrying, and if you win this battle, you're going to overtake us, based on those things, I know what I've got to do. I'm going to step up to the plate, pick up a few stones, fling them around, I'm going to hit you. Imagine if he missed. I mean, imagine if he just grazed him on the forehead. It would have been carnage. But he just went, you know what? No. I'm going to step up because I can see the need. I know my God and I know myself. And I'm going to step into that space and I'm going to do something to try to change the course of this event. I'm going to step into that void and bring God into that space when the whole nation, all the soldiers are carrying in fear. This little boy says, what have I got to lose? I'm going to step in there based on who I know I am, a child of God, based on who he is. He's the one true God and based on who you are, based on what's the logical thing to do here? Well, I've got to step up and defeat this fear. I've got to step up to the plate and put this guy in his place. And so he picks up a stone, flings it and hits him down. You go back to the story, you will not find anywhere there a flashing neon light or a big sign or a raging word from God where he waited on the Lord and God said, Oh, thou shalt pick up a stone and thou shalt fling it at Goliath's head and thou shalt embed it in between his eyes. Thou shalt run up, take thy sword and slash his top off. You won't find that in there. Here's just a man, a boy, who goes, based on what I know of myself, what I know of God and what I know of the situation, here's what needs to be done. And he goes and he does it. It's amazing. No flashing lights, no fleeces, no, 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 no amazing miraculous things. Just a guy who took initiative and did something. Look at Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. 
Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego in the book of Daniel. If you can bring up Daniel 3, 16 and 18 for me, if you can up there, Josiah. Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. Children of Israel are in captivity. King Nebuchadnezzar, who's pretty into himself, thinks he's pretty cool, decides to erect a big statue and says, everyone's got to bow to this statue of me. And these three dudes go, well, based on what we know of ourselves, that we are the children of God, based on what we know of God, that he's the one true God, and based on what we know of the situation, we're, we're, we're going to be thrown to a furnace if we don't do this, but what's the right thing to do? Well, the right thing to do is we're not going to bow to this thing. We can't bow to this statue because it would be wrong. And look what they say. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to Nebuchadnezzar, O Nebi, we do not need to defend ourselves before you. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God whom we serve is able to save us. He will rescue us from your power, your majesty. Watch this. But even if he doesn't, we want to make it clear to you, your majesty, that we will never serve your gods or worship the gold statue you have set up. Nebuchadnezzar flips his lid, chucks him in a furnace. We all know the story. He goes, hang on a second, there's an extra dude in there. Turn it off, turn the oven down and bring them out. They didn't even smell of smoke. Did not even smell of smoke. Nebuchadnezzar has this massive change of heart. Now I don't see anywhere in there where they sat down and said, Nebi, just give us a couple of days. We're going to seek the Lord and we're just going to ask him what should we do in this situation. Let's go to the upper room together, boys, and let's pray. Let's seek God. Get a word of wisdom. Let's get a word of... No. They sat back and they said, based on what we know of ourselves, we're children of God. Based on what we know of the one true God, he is the one true God. Based on what we know of this situation, what is the right response? What needs to happen? What needs to happen is we just need to plant our feet in the ground and say, no, we won't compromise. We will not compromise. And when they did that, what happened? It brought the Spirit of God into that situation and something amazing transpired. Just like David, when David, based on what he knew of who he was, he knew who God was, he knew what needed to happen in that situation. When he stepped into the void, something happened of God. God came into that situation and God turns that situation around. Perhaps the most powerful moment in all of Scripture, one of the most powerful moments in the entire Bible, is a young girl by the name of Esther. Uh, Esther chapter 4, verse 14 and 16, if you can for me, Josiah. Esther chapter 4, and there's 14 and 16. The whole Israelite nation, a plan's been concocted and every Jew is going to be killed. Every child of God, every member of the race that worships the one true God, Yahweh, are about to be destroyed. And there's one person who has the potential possibility, no guarantees attached to this, just the potential possibility of doing something about it by bringing God into the situation. And her uncle, Esther's uncle, Mordecai, comes and says, you know what, you, you, you're in a situation here, here's what's going to happen, we're all going to be killed, all the Jews are going to die, you're the closest to the king, and you're probably the only one in this situation that can turn this thing around. What are you going to do about it? If you keep quiet at a time like this, deliverance and relief for the Jews will arise from some other place, but you and your relatives will die. Who knows if perhaps you were made queen for such a time as this. What a powerful thought. Maybe you were made queen for such a time as this. You know, maybe, maybe as a faith community, as a church, maybe we're here in Jebar. I like Jebar, it sounds cool. Maybe we're in Jebar for such a time as this. Think about it. Think about it. Maybe we're here for a divine reason 
Maybe. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go and gather together all the Jews of Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will do the same. And then, though it is against the law, I will go in to see the king. If I must die, I must die. Sounds a lot like Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. There's no guaranteed word from God. I don't see Esther going, I'll tell you what, you guys go and fast and pray and I'll go and fast and pray as well. And then we'll get back together and let's work out what we feel God is saying. She just makes a decision, goes, right, you go and fast and pray for me because I've already made my mind up in three days' time, here's what I'm going to do. Based on what I know of myself, I'm a daughter of God. Based on what I know of God, he's the one true God, he's, he's almighty, he's powerful. And based on what I know of the situation... There's an opportunity, there's a void, and I'm going to put myself in that void, trusting and believing that God will come and do something in that space when I put myself in there. You see, we carry the Holy Spirit with us. We carry the Holy Spirit within us. And when we step into those places, when we step into those opportunities, we literally bring the God of heaven and earth into that moment, into that space. We bring him in. We bring him in. There wouldn't be a miracle recorded in the Bible if it wasn't for somebody bringing God into a space, stepping out in faith, trusting. And my fear for where we are at as a church, and I can only speak again what I see around Australia and what I hear, we are so passive. We are so passive. Where is the boldness upon us anymore? Where's the fire? Where's the passion to see God move? Where's the confidence to stand against things that we just know are wrong? Not to be rude and arrogant, but I just know that's not kosher. It's not happening. Where's that zeal for God that drives me to the Word of God, that drives me to to look for the needs? that gets me off my chair and gets me into those spaces, those opportunities, those situations. Instead of just sitting around waiting for somebody else to do it or going back to God and going, God, I can see a need there. Lord, I pray that you would meet that need. And God's going, hey, I've given you my spirit. Take that spirit in there and meet that need. Stop sitting back and stop waiting for me to do everything. You know, I had... An interesting situation with one of my kids some time back. I asked them to do something. I never forgot the story. I just thought of it this morning when I was thinking about this. And I said to them, would you do something? It was something like clean your room or put your clothes away or something like that. And then I went out and I came home. And I said to them, it hadn't been done. So I said, right now, well, there was a, a consequence to you not obeying, not doing what I've asked you to do. I asked you to do this, and then you could go out for the afternoon and do your own thing. You haven't done it. I'm sorry, you can't, because I need you to do this job for me. And you know what he turned around and said to me? I just said he. It wasn't Chloe. <laughs> it wasn't Jordan either. That narrows it. Turned around, got indignant, and said to me, I said, didn't I tell you? Here's what he said. He said, yeah, you did, but you only told me once. got frustrated at me because I only told him once and I thought 
many times do you want me to tell you? How many times do you want me to tell you before you take seriously that which I'm asking you to do? And you know what? I sometimes wonder whether God feels the same with us. How many times do you want me to tell you? You keep coming back to me saying, Lord, should I you know, use me? And God's going, I've already told you. I want to. I've already put my spirit in you. I've already told you to go into all the world and preach the gospel. I've already told you to bind up the brokenhearted. I've already told you to, to lay hands on the sick. I've already told you to, to help the downtrodden. I've already told you to help the poor. I've already told you to, to preach my message. I've already told you to stand up for what's right. I've already told you this. I've already told you. I've already told you. I've already told you. How many times do you want me to tell you? And we sit there going, oh, but you've only told us once. Hey, it was a pretty good tell though, wasn't it? No? It was made pretty clear. Here's the point. Stop seeking a yes for the things you already know to do. Start doing them and don't stop until you get a no. Stop asking for a yes to do the things that you know based on who you are, who he is and the needs of the needs of the world around us. Stop asking for a yes from God. Step into that space and start doing. Stop listening for a yes, start waiting for a no. If you get a no, stop. Don't wait for a yes to move, wait for a no to stop. That's what the early disciples did in Acts chapter 16. They started walking. They weren't waiting for a yes, but they were sensitive enough to hear a no. And they changed direction. And that, that while they're walking down that direction, it's yes, 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 but they were sensitive enough to hear a no. Too many people are sitting back in the Western church and we're asking and praying and saying, God, give me a word, give me a word. Let me tell you something. You're not going to get a more powerful and a more stronger word from God than what's written in this book. So let's be a community of people that take this stuff seriously. I love what Rick said last week. He made it very, very practical. And when Jesus came, heal the sick, uh, blind. So what, what was he really saying? Jesus was really, when he came, if you look at his strategy, what he did, he met the felt needs of the world around him. What is the felt need of a blind man? I want to see. What is the felt need of a, of a leper or a prostitute who's ostracized, pushed out, no value, no worth? Acceptance. What is the felt need of the poor? Dignity. There are felt needs all around us in this community. And we can pray till the cows come home. But at some point, we've got to make a decision. We're going to do something about it. Amen? Father, I thank you for uh, this word, Lord, and I do believe it's, a, it's, it's from your heart to us today, God. And I pray, Holy Spirit, when we get up and we leave this place and we walk out of here, God, I pray we wouldn't just move on to the next thing and the next thing and the next thought. And God, I pray there'd be something in this that you would embed in our spirit, that, Father, it would become a part of the DNA of who we are as a combined community, who we are as a Rise Church, that, Father, we'd be people of action, we'd be doers. God, we'd be the kind of people that when you have a job to be done, the first thing you go is, angels, go down to arise, talk to them people, because I know they will do it. So, Father, I pray just seal it in our hearts. Let it germinate inside of us. And speak to us, God. Personalise it, Father. What does it mean for me? In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Excellent. Right, yeah, well, God bless you. Have a great week. Um, as I said, I'll update you a bit more on the building next week. But you know, bring your, your, your hammers and your... Well, don't bring them to church, but bring the mindset, the mentality, and we'll see where we go with that. And uh, do what you can this week to express and show Jesus to somebody that doesn't know him. Amen.